Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, we've got a, a big show. We want to talk about this amazing week at the White House again. Again, and what day is it? It's not even like... Uh, it's the middle of the week. Okay. So, um, and also we have a, a special treat uh, on the back half of Powerhouse Politics. We are actually going to be joined by our friend and colleague Martha Raditz. Martha Raditz and, uh, and, and one of the, the stars and the subjects of uh, Long Road Home, which is going to be here on National Geographic, a timely uh, look at service and sacrifice, uh, as timely as you can imagine, John. It's a Nat Geo uh, miniseries based on Martha's book, The Long Road Home. And I've got breaking news. I don't know if you heard this yet, Rick, uh, but it just got five stars, five out of five stars uh, by TV Guide as uh, must watch. I was going for six. Okay. You know, it's, it's good. We, 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 like, like you said, we turned things up to 11 here. That's right. Um, so, uh, first of all, I, I, I kind of don't know where to start, but I'm going to start with the revolt of the senators. Well, at least of two senators. Two of them, yeah. Two and a half, two senators. Uh, Bob Corker uh, kind of led the way on this. Bob Corker, who had already said that the president was, on, was, was leading us potentially towards World War III. Okay, so I don't know how you dial up the outrage more than that, but I think he actually managed to do it. He went to a lot. Uh, so before we get to the next senator, let, let, just just a quick a quick little clip of what Bob Corker said to our colleague Mary Bruce. I think the president's debasing the nation. Uh, I don't think there's any question, but that's the case just in the way that he conducts himself and and goes to such a low level. Uh, uh, just uh, I do. Okay, and then Corker was, was doing that, and there was a lot of drama because the president of the United States was going up to Capitol Hill to join the Senate Republicans at their weekly, their Tuesday lunch, and Bob Corker was going to be sitting there, and in fact, we learned he was uh, sitting there with the uh, 51 other uh, Senate colleagues, um, and they had lunch, no mention of Corker. The president, as you probably heard, got multiple, multiple standing ovations, but, but here's the thing. The lunch happens, and then we hear from Jeff Flake. Jeff Flake, who is another one who has not been not been shy about criticizing President Trump, but he took to the to the the Senate floor to say first of all that he's not running for reelection. But what he had to say when he said, "I rise to say enough, enough," he was joining the Corker chorus. Maybe it's just a two man chorus at this point, but, but yes, trying to the say. Duet. Trying to say to me, this this wasn't about policy. With this McCain was, kind of singing backup, right? <laughs> There's a couple others of the and, the, and Ben Sass doing the Ted Cruz and, the and Lil yeah, Marco or somewhere yeah. else. But to me, this this wasn't about policy. This wasn't even about personality. This was a Republican United States senator, not two actually, saying this man is simply unfit for the presidency. That's how you dial it up beyond World War III. That's how you dial it up to 11. That, and to me, there's no turning back from Isn't that Isn't it moment. more than saying they're unfit for the pres- he's unfit for the presidency? He's talking about not simply at this moment in time, but from both of them. And it's important to point out that Flake never actually mentioned the president's name. It was a much less personal attack than Corker. Than, than yeah. Corker. But it was no, there was no doubt who he was talking about. And the warning from both of them is not simply that the current occupant of the Oval Office is not suited for that role, but that this is doing has the potential to do lasting damage to our nation. That, I, that's exactly right, and that's unprecedented. Uh, that, the, 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 this has never happened before. The sentence that we all, we've uttered so often. And my question, John, is: Is it genuine that Team Trump, Bannon, and the Trumpists out there? 
consider this a victory because they vanquished another foe. Well, they declared victory in both cases. I understand what they said publicly, but did they really Because they said, and they're right in the case of Flake, because Flake acknowledged it. Explicitly. Flake decided not to run for election, re-election, because he was going to face a primary when that he was trailing badly, and if he was going to win... And Flake's telling he was going to have to do things he didn't believe in. And, and I don't know if he would have won that primary. And, and, I would say the chances are he probably wouldn't have won that primary. He certainly would have had to turn things around. And Corker disputes the, the facts on his own end. But Corker he would might have, have been in a better case, but he, 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 he may have but, but But regardless, he's, he's leaving the field to play. So you have these two people who are unleashed to see it. Neither of them are ever going to face the voters again. The Bannon wing, the Trumpists say, this is a victory. This is us winning. This is Donald Trump showing who's boss, because these guys have to get out of his way. And they like the idea that they're jousting a little bit with Republican senators. Now, the question to my mind is, do you win the battle but then lose the war if you then nominate people that are way off the, main, the mainstream radar, if you can't get things done because you no longer count on these votes? But there's no sense out of President Trump, and we heard from him today, that there's any second guessing about how they've handled any of these relationships. They're digging. The White House is digging in, even if that means that Republican senators are thrown overboard. Well, in, in fact, so the, I thought this was interesting, is that Flake came out, he gave that speech. And uh, there were, there were first of all, it was a surprise. It wasn't, people didn't know he was going to go and do that. But uh, clearly, a few of his colleagues had a sense that he was about to, to do something, and they came to join and listen. Uh, ben Sass actually applauded from the, uh, from the Senate floor, which is not something you're technically supposed to do. Um, but... Immediately after the speech, uh, Mitch McConnell stood up and spoke, and he certainly didn't join in and echo the critique of Jeff Flake, but he did praise Flake. Listen to this. From my perspective, the senator from Arizona has been a great team player, always trying to get a constructive outcome, no matter what the issue before us. A great team player. He just called a great team player somebody who said that effectively the president is doing grave damage to our nation and it is time for us to step up and say enough and to say stop and to say that there will be an accounting for where you stood at this moment. Those, that was the message of Jeff Flake, as harsh a condemnation of the Republican president as you could possibly hear and then stepping to the microphones as the Republican leader of the Senate to praise him as a great team player. And Jeff Flake's condemnation was of Mitch McConnell and the McConnells of the world as well, because he's calling on them to get off the sidelines on this and to step up. They're not doing that. And McConnell didn't reference that part of the speech, quite obviously. We've we've been talking, though, throughout this year about the vice that Republicans find themselves in. Do you want to fight from the inside or the outside? There's now two distinct schools of thought, maybe at least two. One that's that's now the Flake Corker, Ben Sass world that says we have to call him out. John McCain, and you put in this camp as well. Then you've got Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul playing golf and saying, let's keep this guy as close as possible. How long does that last? I thought that the the fact that Jeff Flake says enough, that is a clarion call to his colleagues to wake up. Are they the only two who speak out? Will anyone who's actually going to face the voters again speak out? Because there's something about engaging on that level that I think is different. And the fact that they're getting out of the way of this Trump train at this moment that they describe as facing great peril, I think it takes away from the message. But the White House view is these are two losers. Right. So (laughs) at, at the briefing, right after Flake's speech, I asked Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, the obvious question. I mean, there's got to be some concern. Listen to this. 
So I understand that uh, neither of these two senators we're talking about now are, have been allies, to say the least, in the president. But this has been an extraordinary series of attacks on the president from major figures in the Republican Party, not typical political attacks. I mean, saying that the president is responsible for the dis debasement of the nation, that a breakdown of civility is the fault of the president's and that enough is enough. We've seen similar remarks from John McCain, the, the party's former nominee. It, it, in any of this, does, does any of this make the president pause and wonder if he is doing anything wrong, that he bears any responsibility Look, again, for what these senators are saying is a breakdown of civility in our country. Look, I think the voters of these individual senator states are speaking uh, in pretty loud volumes. I think that they were not likely to be reelected, and I think that shows that the support is more behind this president than it is those two individuals. Why is there so little, yeah, why, why is there so little pushback from other Republican senators on this? I mean, Mitch McConnell is the, is the uh, Republican leader. Bob Corker is still a committee chairman. Should there Look, be... Look, Leader McConnell stood with the president just last week here at the White House and talked about how they were working together, how they were getting things done, how they were focused on actually moving the agenda forward. And so I think that's a pretty clear indication of where his support lies and what we're working to do. So not a lot of second no. guessing no. over there. And then the president subsequently talked about all his standing ovations. Now, the first standing <laughs> ovation, do you know what it was? Where was it? No, but at the at the lunch at the Senate lunch, uh, the president. Uh, I think it's maybe when he entered the room. Well, yeah, it turns Around out that, then? it turns out that people do stand up when the president right. enters the room. Oh, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> and the journalists do that too when there's a press conference. Yes. We tend not to applaud. I mean, with any president. Right, right, I mean, right, I'm, right. I'm talking. To, um, <laughs> but uh, but then Mitch McConnell. Um, spoke to effectively kind of you know, the president doesn't need an introduction but kind of set it set it up and Mitch McConnell said it is because of President Donald Trump that we now have Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court big round of applause standing ovation which is then McConnell goes out and praises Jeff, praises Blake, Jeff Blake for uh, for eviscerating the president but but that is that is the McConnell uh, view of this and the majority of the Republican uh uh Senate conference is that you know, he is the Republican president. He's the Republican president who is willing to sign legislation if they can figure out a way to pass it on things like taxes and health care. And he's the Republican president who gave us uh, the Supreme Court justice of our dreams. And maybe we'll do it again if there's another vacancy. So, yeah, McConnell probably <laughs> agrees with everything Flake said, but he wants to get something done. And critical in this is that there is a big something that's still out there. And there's a hope, uh, maybe more than a shred of hope, a ray of hope, that they can get taxes done. They can do a big tax cut. And that what's, would your, be what's, a, what's the Rick Klein prediction on a, uh, on, on a tax reform? By when? By, by, by the end of the year? Okay. I mean, if you want to do it that way. Okay, no, no, no. I mean, I, 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 okay, let's, say, let's, they will, say, let's say by the end of the year. But I, I don't want to penalize you if they come back and do it in January. I appreciate that. They, they will pass <laughs> a tax cut. That Donald Trump will say is the biggest tax cut in the history of tax cuts. So there'll be a signing ceremony at the White House. Yes, there will be. But any Democrats going to be there? Is there will be zero Democrats there? There will be zero Democrats there. I see it clearly in my mind. It won't be the, the massive tax reform that they're talking about, and there'll be a lot of second guessing. How big we talking? How big a tax cut? The, the, the Bush tax cuts were what were they again? How much? Uh... I, I told you it's going to be the biggest ever. Why don't you okay. listen? When I, I said it the first time. I, but as long as there's the well, hope, I, of and that, you're saying by the end of the year, or, or, or you're taking my, I'll, I'll give me give me into February, and, and okay. I'll, I'll February. Okay. So, as long as there's the shred of hope of passing that tax cut, you're going to have Republicans, I think, by and large, staying in line. And it's worth noting that Flake and Corker weren't getting denounced by their colleagues, but. 
people were hardly lining up to endorse their comments. I mean, some applause from Ben Sass and you know John McCain's going to say great things. A lot of people say great things about Jeff Flake. They're not going to join in in the critique of the president. If or when tax reform collapses like the other legislative things have collapsed, if or when it seems like President Trump will be politically toxic, you're going to see others come out because you and I have had these conversations privately with members of Congress. It's not like Flake and Corker are the only two guys that think this about President Trump. They're just the only two guys who are saying it. But by and large, the, the this is not a stampede. The it's Republicans not. No. Are, 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 are in line. You pointed out in your much-talked-about essay in, in, in the note uh, that Republicans, while this was going on in the House, what were they doing? They were introducing uh, new investigations that, uh, that did exactly what President Trump wants, that looked at Obama and Clinton-era things. I mean, taking marching orders from the White House at the same moment. Unbelievable. Well, not not believe, not unbelievable. Not literally. Yeah. <laughs> but no. But 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 will there be a point where these guys get a lot of company? Because I think the way that they framed it, this is not about themselves personally. This is about this moment in American history. And I think what side you're on becomes the question for more and more Republicans. But let me tell you how it's seen at the White House because there's, there's a different view of all this. First of all, that Flake was a loser. He was going to lose anyway. Right. Corker was going to lose anyway. Um, that these guys are just on the wrong side of history. That if you look, I don't know if you if you noticed this, but the stock market's been up. Have you have you caught that? I, I've I've noticed. Yeah. Okay, so we have so we have the stock market uh, uh, hitting record after record. We have unemployment low. We have uh, the economy, you know, apparently growing. We even have signs, uh, conflicting signals, but signs that actual real wages uh, have 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 gone up. Something which, which hasn't happened in a long time. And um, I don't know if you also saw the news overseas, which is uh, ISIS has fallen in, in Mosul. Mm-hmm. ISIS has fallen in Raqqa. Um, you know, so... So get on board the Trump train. Get on board. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, and, and... And this is all noise and, and, and whatever. And you can, you can layer on top of that the, the fact, and I think it's a fact, that when that vote comes on tax cuts... Jeff Flake's going to vote with the president, as he has on most items. And I think Bob Corker can be counted on to, to support the agenda far more than not. But that's why this is bigger than political wins or losses from the perspective that they're framing it. They're, they're saying— We'll see if they will. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. So let, let, let's see. You think see. Jeff Flake may vote against the tax No, I think, I think you're right that, they, that you would expect, certainly based on, on where these two have been, that they would support it. But, but Flake said something interesting. Uh, today, I believe it was in the, the GMA interview with uh, with George, uh, that you know he's a tax cut guy yeah. and he's a supply sider and he believes that cutting taxes spurs growth. But he's intensely worried about the debt, as is Corker, as is Corker, Corker more explicitly. And but 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 Flake said he's concerned, so you know he's not going to support any old uh, 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 tax tax cuts unless there's right. some reform that that, that that doesn't you know that, that makes up for some of the lost revenue. Um, and I think Corker's in the same place, so we'll see. I mean, one thing we know is that neither one of them is going to be convinced by a call from the president. That's so, right. That's a great know. point. And I'll tell you, John, one, one thing that struck me, I was thinking, did, did you see this coming? I think a year ago or 11 months ago when the president wins, I could see a United States senator standing up on the floor of the Senate and say this guy isn't fit for the job, a Republican senator doing it. But I thought it would be – Criticizing him. I thought it would be Ted Cruz. I thought it would be Mike Lee. I thought it would be criticizing him or Rand Paul. Someone criticizing him for not being a pure enough – conservative. That's not what this is. This isn't about ideology. And again, it's even bigger than personality. It's about temperament. It's about the ability to lead. And as you say, it's about potentially long-term damage to the country. All right, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Martha Raddatz of ABC News. Hello, you have one new voice message. Hey, Christina, I'm 
frustrated. I still want to do whatever I can until we find out what happened. A murder on Orchard Street. The trigger man. He's out there somewhere. Where'd that gun go? His story is I hope that killer always sleeps with his eye open. Seven heart-pounding episodes streaming on abcnews.com with reports on ABC's Nightline. And listen to the podcast, Dive Into the Case, Help Catch a Killer. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. A very special uh, interview which we just conducted. Rick, go ahead. Who are we talking to? So the new National Geographic miniseries is called The Long Road Home, and Martha's joined in this conversation by Sergeant Eric Berkwin, who is uh, part of the platoon that she covered uh, as part of this mission in 2004, and actor John Beavers. We are very excited to have you here talking about the miniseries that is coming out based on your book, the Long Road Home. The Long Road and Home. And right next to you, Sergeant Eric, Eric Berkwin and, and John, John Beavers, Beavers, who plays the sergeant Eric. in, in, I, the, in I, the miniseries. I pretend to be Eric Berkwin. Martha, this is, I mean, I remember as you were writing this book, as you're going, this was such a such an emotional and powerful uh, experience for you to, I know you you, you covered uh, this this horrible day, uh, this horrible battle in in. in in, in Iraq in, uh, in 2004, turn it into your book, and now it's going to be on a miniseries. I know. It's, it's it, it, you know, Eric can talk about it too. I mean, it's, I, I think none of us could have ever imagined that we're here right now talking about that, but I, I'm really proud because it tells the story of these guys, and these guys who are watching here from, from the 25 Cav, Eric was on a rooftop. They were ambushed, 19 guys. Um, and uh, Nat Geo, honestly, has just done an amazing job. John Beavers, his performance with uh, Eric Berkwin is just incredible. And, you know, you got this here. You got Michael Kelly in there playing someone as well. So, so bring us back to April 2004. I mean, oh. this is when... This was in the very beginning of the war. It was... Um, you know, we were going in there in the impression that it was going to be a more of a peacekeeping mission. We were going to be passing out food and helping out, building schools and stuff like that. And then uh, this was pretty much our first day there. And while we were on a patrol... Remind us exactly where you are. I was in uh, Sutter City. And uh, he was 23 years old. I always like to point that out to uh, I was a very young man. And um, we were just doing a patrol out there. And on our way back, things changed dramatically for us. And now I'm standing here. You know, it's been a pretty crazy experience throughout all of it. What, what, what's it like to watch John Beavers over here recreating this, like, the, by the, the worst days of your life, right? I mean, this is... Um, it wasn't the worst day. It's one of, you know, many. Yeah. But it was pretty surreal watching all of these guys. I mean, the casting director did an amazing job casting all of these actors portraying, you know, some of the real-life soldiers. And the ability that they did... The, the abilities that they had and they did to order to act like us it was amazing because they picked up the mannerisms because they had the ability to hang out with some of the soldiers and get to learn them so it made it very surreal well, can i just add in butt in in your yeah. interview that, that <laughs> eric was also a technical advisor um along with aaron fowler who was yeah. on one of the rescue squads there and so john beavers had an advantage right because you had eric there every single day where yeah. the others met them but yeah no i mean i had a I had a huge sense of responsibility going into it, but sure. then once you 
meet this guy and you see how generous he is and you know just very early on was extremely supportive telling me I could do it before I believed I could do it and you know we were on a set that was so accurate that some of these guys said you know they could blink for a second and really believe they were back in solder and I got to walk around that set with Eric and wow. ask him like hey I got to do this scene tomorrow where we you know we take this building or whatever how did it actually happen and he could show me you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You recreate the city <laughs> at Fort Hood, and, and Solder City is is placed right there. And it was a yeah. lot. Of, I mean, a lot of bonding with the cast. I love the dog tags you're wearing, Martha. Tell the story there. So, these John Beavers did this. I mean, this cast and crew, all of us grew so close. And John Beavers, for all the cast and crew, made these dog tags, which say, "The Long Road Home, Cover Your Sector," because that's. You you explain why you did this. Well, there's a really great monologue in the in the in the show where uh, Robert Milton Berger, played by Jeremy Sisto, says, um, "When we're out there, your only job is cover your sector and trust that the guy on the right and left of you is doing the same." And it basically means you have to do your job for your brother's sake, and your brother's doing his job for your sake, and that's how we're going to get through this. And that's very true of the way these guys talk about this conflict and, and you know, any soldiering experience they've had and that's why it means the entire world to us uh, in the cast that um, so many members of 2-5 Cav are, are here today and, and have supported uh, throughout the whole uh, process of shooting the thing. Gold Star families who lost um, uh, sons on that day have have you know been very generous with sharing their stories and sharing their support and telling us that they believed that we could do justice to this story, and we really believe that you know we have. And you it, did. You know. A lot's happened in the 13 years since since then, but it, we're at this extraordinary moment where we're talking about gold star families, we're talking about service, we're talking about sacrifice. Martha, I was really struck by something you said over the weekend on on this week about how the focus over the last week or two has been how hard that phone call is to make, but there should be more focus on what it's like to receive that. What are the lessons that you view out of this, out of this incident and now out of this miniseries as ap- applicable to this moment now? Well, I think, you know, I have to say that, that obviously what happened in um, Niger resonated for, for me this week. I have, I know a lot of Gold Star families. I know, and I, they're sacred to me. They're sacred. And I, I think respecting them and doing whatever you can to help them is, is what you should do. Um, I also have the advantage of knowing these guys for 13 years and have covered conflict, as you know, for, for longer than that. Um, that really was my overwhelming sentiment, that, that I, I, I understand how hard it must be for anyone to make those calls. And, I mean, it's like any death, right? You always say, I don't know what to say. Sure. Um, but I think you just have to give people support. Um, these guys, one of my most emotional nights on the set, it was the last night we were there. And um, the mother of one of the soldiers who was lost was there, and the actor who played her son was there. And mm. we walked. It's in the middle of the wow. night. We walked down the set. Um, it was still dusty because they'd had lots of special effects. She didn't want to go down there then. And the actor had his arm around her. I had my arm around her, holding hands, walking down that set. And I said, do you want to come off? Do you want to take a break? And she said, no, no, no. I mean, just tears streaming down her face. We all did. And um, she said, no, I want to see what he experienced. I want to be where he was. I want to. And she, she looked up in the sky of the set and said, this is the last thing he saw. 
-hmm. And she said, but I think he was so brave. And I, I, and we talked, I said, do you think he was scared? And she said, no, I don't think he was scared. And it meant so much to her. And I really, I mean, the thing that I'm proudest of is, is for anything that I had to do with this is that it's, it reminds people of people like Eric and the others who do this all the time, who are less than 1% of the country who do this. I know John, I know Michael Kelly, I know Jeremy, all those guys have an enormous respect for a part of the world that a lot of people don't know anything about. And, you know, these guys have become so close. And I know this is all a lifelong bond. I think all of us, all of us feel that way. So we're... What was it about this? Where were you? What were you thinking? What were you doing as you were, you know, you, 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 were, you were covering the story for ABC when things went bad in Sadr City? Well, I, I mean, I was in Baghdad. I wasn't there in the battle, and no one was. I mean, no one knew yeah. an ambush was going to happen. We were actually just talking about this, all of us, that, you know, there's no video that exists of that, mm. of that battle. There are a mm. couple of still photographs of people coming out after it. And, and um, Carl Wald, who was up on the roof after they were ambushed, took some photographs of the soldiers on the roof while they were there. Um, but he took them because he thought that someday someone would find that camera and see the last pictures of them because they never mm-hmm. thought they'd make it off that roof. So when I heard about this battle afterwards, um, Major General Peter Corelli, who was the division commander of the 1st Cavalry Division, I said, I, I, I got to talk to these guys. And they flew me out to Camp War Eagle, and I sat down, and it was one of those life-changing moments where you realize, you know, we're all covering the politics of war at that point. The the invasion was over, and you realize how profound this was. I'd also never seen a soldier cry, and Robert Miltenberger and some others broke down on camera explaining what happened. And then they all said, you got to go talk to the families, and that's... I I, I couldn't leave this story. I I even hate calling it a story. I mean, it's, it's like I'm... I'm protective of these guys. They are of me. It's yeah. it's 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 just it's different than anything I've ever done. And I can't imagine those t- soldiers that I'm and families close to, like, being away from them. I mean, it's it's just it, it's really the most important project I've ever been on. And how important is it for the the macro story of learning the lessons of the war to focus on an individual battle like this to go real micro on this frame by frame as the, as this film does with your experience. Um, I think that it's important to actually take a look at what had happened and how it happened. That way we could better prepare ourselves in future engagements if that was the case. It, it's also, I, I say, you know, like you're, you so nail Eric Berkwin in this, but it's a bigger story than that. And, yeah. and it's what I would say to all the guys involved in it, too. This isn't just about you. This isn't just about your battle. This is a universal story. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I think this show does a lot of things, but... One of the things that I think it does really well is it talks about, as, as Martha was saying, like it talks about the soldiers on the ground, shows you the details and the nuance of what's happening there, but it also spends a lot of time with the families um, back home waiting for news in excruciating hours between updates. Um, it also deals with the families in, in the Iraqi communities that are <clears throat> displaced or, uh, you know, dr- dramatically affected by... It's, it touches on... The different humans, the different individuals that pay the cost of war, and I think, I think we, as a country, maybe, <clears throat> need an update in in our conversation about what is the cost of war and who pays it. And I think, as you're saying, it's a really excellent question. I think because we're 
looking at these very specific flawed, human, brave, courageous, terrified individuals, suddenly we go, oh, that's me in that unthinkable circumstance. And war stops feeling so far away. And the 1% of the country that participates in the families that wait for that news stop feeling uh, alien from us. And we suddenly go, oh, I understand. Uh, that's for me. You know, they pay that cost. They pay that cost for my freedom. You know what I mean? And, and humans, individuals, do that. And, and this is that an intense role to play, and like you said, a responsibility. Yeah, man. I tell you what, I, I feel a responsibility fun. talking about it, but I also really care so much about this project, and I'm I'm so excited for people to see it for exactly that reason. I think that it will, in a small way, affect the conversation about um, you know what these guys do and uh, what their families do with them. We should also say that it's an, the A part on, on National Geographic. That's it premieres on November 7th, but there's all, the documentary. Yep. Okay. You no, go ahead. Tell me. No, tell me. <laughs> no, no, no. I was going to have to ask you. To so, it's eight, so it starts on November 7th on Nat Geo Channel, and Nat Geo has invested really so much in trying to tell this story. But they also, at the so they'll run two parts that night, and then each Tuesday night after that they'll run another one. And when part eight airs, right after that they'll air a documentary that, we produced at, at ABC through ABC with the real guys. And I go back and, I mean, I have over the years anyway, we yeah. have 13 years of tape of, yeah, of talking to these yeah. guys and just uh, sort of where are, where are they now. Yeah. They're right here. Yeah. That's right. Well, Martha, right here, thank please. you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for putting your heart and soul into this role. And uh, we look forward to watch this entire miniseries and, of course, the documentary. Martha Raditz, Eric, John... You can go on for another hour, but uh, we'll talk more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Be sure to check us out at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show. Tell your friends. Leave us a rating. We appreciate it. For John Carl, I'm Rick Klein. Thanks for listening. Here on Cape Cod, the summer is wonderful. This is a place where people leave their doors open. A killing on the Cape. There hadn't been a murder in Turo for 30 years. It was everyone's worst nightmare. Jealousy, anger, secrets, sex, and money. Believe me, everyone in this story had a motive. I couldn't imagine who could have killed her. Six heart-pounding podcasts followed the clues, the evidence, the new interviews. Listen now. And then, don't miss the explosive two-hour documentary television event, Friday night, November 24th, on ABC. Is the right man in jail?